Well, here we are in chapter 14. Again, we're uh, in what is known as the Upper Room Discourse, where the night before the Lord's uh, death, it's an unparalleled portion of Scripture, as I told you before. It doesn't appear in any of the, any other uh, gospel accounts. It appears only here in John. Uh, it began back up in chapter 13. It runs this uh, Upper Room Discourse all the way to chapter 16. Uh, just great, rich promises that the Lord uh, makes to those who are his own, those who uh, belong to him. Uh, obviously, in the context, he's speaking to the 11 disciples, 11 true followers of Christ. But the promises that he makes here are applicable to all true followers uh, of Christ. Uh, and, and the section that we're beginning to look at this morning that I, that I read to you uh, is really going to be somewhat challenging. Uh, because I think it, it uh, presents to us one of the most inscrutable or most impossible, I think, uh, under, to understand of all the divine mysteries, that being the nature of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. The fact that God is one, yet three distinct persons at the same time. And you see that right off the bat here in verse 15. Look down there at verse 15. You see the members of the Godhead. Jesus is speaking, who is the second person of the Trinity. Verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, who is the first person of the Trinity. And he'll give you another helper. It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that he might be with you forever. So, one God, yet three distinct persons. Now, everything we need to know about God, everything we need to know about the Trinity, God has set fit, uh, seen fit to reveal to us in the pages of the Scripture. However, there's always going to be elements of the God's Trinitarian nature that are going to escape our comprehension because we're finite beings and he's infinite. We're created and he's the creator. We're limited to time and he is eternal. So coming to a full understanding of the nature and the character of God, I think is going to be something uh, um, uh, uh, impossible to grasp. But we do need to grasp what is revealed, and we do need to grasp the reality of what God's word says to us to the best of our ability uh, as he's revealed himself to us on the pages of Scripture concerning uh, the the Godhead. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, wrote this. He says, Christian people are uh, are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did, they know that he redeemed men by his atoning death, even if they differ among themselves as to what exactly this involved. But the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work of the Holy Spirit does. Some talk of the Spirit of Christ in a way that one would talk of the Spirit of Christmas, a vague cultural pressure making for good-natured friendship and religiosity. Some people think that the Spirit is an inspiring Uh, as inspiring the moral convictions of even unbelievers like Gandhi. But most, perhaps, do not think of the Holy Spirit at all and have no positive idea of any sort about what he does. They are, for practical purposes, in the same position as the disciples that Paul met in Ephesus who said, we have not yet heard whether there be any Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 9. That's probably an accurate statement. Most Christians have not thought much about him whatsoever. And most Christians have probably, if they have thought, have probably thought improper thoughts. I think in, uh, in part you can add uh, to the causes of not having a proper understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit, probably the charismatic movement in the day in which we live. Because of the many great errors of the charismatic movement, because of the chaos in that movement, the false teachings that, bring, uh, that it brings with it concerning this issue. One writer says this concerning the charismatic movement. He says, irreverent ideas, irreverent actions, untrue beliefs, false claims, false promises, fleshly behaviors, all of these are attributed to the Holy Spirit, but they're really a dishonor to him that they would be even identified with his name. 
And if you know or have seen or have watched anything of the charismatic movement, you understand exactly uh, the things I say that people say that, that they attribute to the, the person of the Holy Spirit that's not true. Arthur Pink wrote this at one time. He says, ignorance of the third person of the Godhead is the most dishonoring to him and the most highly injurious to ourselves. That's a true statement. We need to know God because he wants to be known. We need to have a proper biblical understanding of the person of God. And again, it's not just a modern issue. Again, I think the charismatic movement has added greatly to the confusion. But the, the great Methodist uh, pastor-preacher Samuel Chadwick, uh, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he wrote this. He says, listen, I think this is really good. The gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ. Now, just be honest with yourself and for a moment sit When's the last time you got up in the morning, had a cup of coffee, and the first thing you thought in your mind, well, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ? When's the last time you thought that? Okay, I'll make it easier for you. When's the first time you thought that? <laughs> right? We've got to get it right, and we just lived in this muddled fog, right, like Packer says. The gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ. It was for this all the rest was. The incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension were all preparatory to Pentecost. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, all the rest would be useless. The great thing in Christianity is the gift of the Spirit, the essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Holy Spirit. Tremendous statement. 1800s, late uh, 1900s, early 1800s. Let's go back a little bit earlier. How about to 1600, 1660? Puritan pastor, writer Thomas Goodwin, uh, has a massive tome on the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. He says this in that work, 1660, There is a general omission in the saints of God, and they are not giving the Holy Spirit that glory that is due his person for his great work of salvation in us, and so much that we have in our hearts almost forgotten this person. Robert Hawker, famous uh, uh, a commentator, pastor, theologian, uh, in, uh, uh, in his lectures uh, on the person, Godhead, and ministry of the Holy Spirit, 1817. He writes this, I am the more prompted to this service from contemplating the present awful day of the world, talking about his, his uh, book here, his lectures. I am the more prompted to this service from contemplating the present awful day of the world, Surely the last days and perilous times so expressly spoken by the Spirit are come, as it says in 1 Timothy 4.1. The floodgates of heresy are broken up, the pouring forth of their deadly poison in various streams through the land, and in more, a more daring and open manner the denial of the person of the Godhead and ministry of the Holy Spirit has come forward and indicates the tempest to follow. In such a season, it is needful to contend that to contend uh, and that earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now more awakened manner ought people be uh, to, to remember the words of Jesus to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And one last one. Quoting uh, Arthur Pink, who's actually quoting George Smeaton from 1880. Smeaton wrote this. He says, We may safely affirm that the doctrine of the Spirit is almost entirely ignored. Then Pete and that, uh, uh, Pink adds this. He says, Wherever little honor is done to the Spirit, there is grave cause to suspect the genuineness of any profession of Christianity. 
While it is true during the past two generations when he's writing this, much has been written and spoken in the person of the Holy Spirit, yet for the most part it has been sadly inadequate, erroneous in character. Much dross has been mingled in with gold, and the fearful amount of unscriptural nonsense and fanaticism has marred the testimony. And it has only increased over the last 50 to 70 years when, from when he penned these, that, those uh, words. Boy, we've we got to have a proper understanding. We desperately need to have a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus introduces him here in this text in full. Now, it's not the first time that he appears in, in the Gospel of John. I'll, I'll just give you these references, and you can write them down and look at them later if you like. But First John 3, uh, First John, or, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verse 32. John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending on a dove, as a dove out of heaven, and remained upon him. And he did not recognize him, but he who sent me... To, to baptize in the water, said, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and reigning upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John 3 and 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, they cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 3 and 8, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear a sound of it, but don't know where it's going, come, uh, where it's from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3 and 34, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Uh, John 6 and 63, the Spirit gives life. John seven thirty nine, he spoke this the, of the Holy Spirit uh, for those who believed in him and who received, uh, for, for the Spirit was not yet given. Uh, John 14, uh, 17, the Spirit of truth. John 14, 26, the helper of the Holy Spirit, who the Father is going to send in my name. He's going to bring all things into remembrance. John fifteen twenty six, when the helper comes, the spirit of truth, he'll proceed forth from the Father and be a witness to me. John sixteen thirteen, the spirit of truth comes. He's going to guide you into all truth. Right? He's not going to speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he'll speak and disclose to you what is to come. Same thing, John 20, speaking of the person of the Holy Spirit. So there's really not a, a lot of reason for uh, us to have ignorance concerning the person of the Holy Spirit. He's all through the, uh, the, the gospel of John, and uh, the Lord Jesus is going to explain him more fully here in this text we're about to open up. So, so ignorance and error shouldn't be that way. And the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ wants his followers, the ones, the 11 who are in front of him and the ones who are uh, sitting in front of me, Day, all of us who are followers of Christ is because he's leaving, right? And he try, he's trying to bring them comfort, and comfort comes from a proper understanding of, of, of the truth. Now, before we get into the text proper, I just thought I felt I, I needed to do just a few things to remind us what the Bible tells us concerning the person of the Holy Spirit, some things we already know, or at least should know. And probably the first thing we need to realize is the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. He's a person whose work is to get a hold of us and to use us. He's not merely a vague power for us to get a hold of and to use for our benefit. So the Holy Spirit is a person. He works to get a hold of us and use us. He's not merely a vague power we are to get a hold of and use for our benefit, which you see a lot in charismania. Scripture reveals the fact that the Holy Spirit possesses attributes of personhood. You see that all through the New Testament. The Spirit is said to decide, to act, to speak, to feel, just like persons do, other persons do. He has an intellect. He knows the thoughts of God. He has a mind. He has emotion. He can be grieved by God's people and their unbecoming behavior towards God and towards one another. He has a will. 
Uh, he, he's the one who distributes spiritual gifts in the church according to his will. And again, he does those things that only a person can do. He, he teaches, he testifies, he leads, he directs. He gives guidance, he, he convicts, he speaks, he intercedes, he reveals. Uh, we can read of the love of the Spirit, uh, as well as the love of the Father and the Son, which appears in regeneration and sanctification of men and the application of grace, Romans fifteen thirty. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive with me together in your prayers or prayers uh, to God for me. The love of the Spirit. An, an, an impersonal power can't love. An impersonal force can't be lied to, can't be blasphemed, can't be insulted, as the Holy Spirit has been and sadly uh, will probably continue to be. He was said to have been lied to by Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, blasphemed and sinned against, uh, which the text of the scripture says is an unpardonable sin, which can never be nor with propriety be said of if he is not a person, if he's not also a divine person. You read that in the Old Testament, he was uh, rebelled against, he was vexed, he was provoked uh, by the nation of Israel. Again, all of those things can't be said of him if he's not a person. Further, a little more on a technical side, which I think is a little uh, interesting in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament refers to the Holy Spirit with masculine pronouns. He, him, right? But the Greek word pneuma for spirit is neuter. So God knows, right? He's a person. So it must be said that not only is the person of the Holy Spirit a person, but he's a distinct person. He's distinct from the Father, distinct from the Son. Uh, you see that, for instance, in the distinct appearances of the, of the Holy Spirit. For instance, at the baptism of Christ. Matthew 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, and behold, the voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. So all three persons of the Godhead, distinct, right there at the baptism of Christ. See the same thing on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit descends upon the apostles in the form of tongues of fire, when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as God the Spirit was giving them utterances. And Peter, later in the chapter, explains this event. He says, Jesus, verse 32 of Acts chapter 2, uh, Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He was poured out uh, forth, or he was poured forth, which you both see and hear. So, again, three members, all three members of the Godhead, three distinct persons of the Godhead. And again, I think it's vitally important for us to understand uh, and realize the Holy Spirit's personhood. Because the alternative is to think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force. One writer says this, he says, thinking this way is the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. He says, thinking this way, many Christians desire to get more of the Spirit in the same way that one gets power from an electrical outlet. They speak of plugging into the Spirit and emphasize spiritual techniques or experiences that will tap them into the Spirit's power. The writer goes on and he says, The Holy Spirit is not a mere power. However, the third person of the divine Godhead, co-equal with God the Father, co-equal with God the Son. James Boyce says, If we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, 
our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Spirit? If we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit get more of me? The first thought is entirely pagan. The second is New Testament Christianity. R.A. Torrey, who is the second president of Moody Bible Institute, said this in his book on the Holy Spirit. He says, the conception of the Holy Spirit is a, as a divine influence of power is that we are somehow to get hold of and use. This leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. One who thinks so of the Holy Spirit and one who at the same time imagines, imagines that he has received the Holy Spirit will almost inevitably fall, be full of spiritual pride and strut around as if he belonged to some kind of superior order of Christians. One frequently hears such a person say, I'm a Holy Ghost man or I'm a Holy Ghost woman. But if, once, if we once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, an infinite majesty of infinite majesty, glory and holiness and power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his abode there and take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. I can think of no more, more humbling thought or more overwhelming thought than the person of the divine majesty and glory dwelling in my heart and making me ready to be used by him. Right? A proper understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit whom the text of the New Testament says now dwells in us as believers should cause us to be humble to the dust. To think that God would come and dwell with man. So this confusion is everywhere. You see it even in the text of Scripture in Acts chapter 2 where a man wants to get a hold of, plug into the power of the Holy Spirit for his own purposes. Simon uh, the, the Magi, the Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 2, uh, or Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. Uh, and you read through the text there, Acts 8, 9 through 24. Apparently this man believed to some extent. Uh, and he uh, listened to the preaching of, uh, uh, of Philip. Uh, we're told in verse 13 he believed. Uh, he, he was baptized he knew something of biblical Christianity, uh, but he fell into the mistake of thinking that the Spirit was a power to be purchased because he actually offered the money, the, the disciples' money. Listen, he actually offered the money, money to the disciples for this power. He offered money to receive it, to receive it. Now, how many times, no, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but how many times have you, even from your own mouth, spoken about the person of the Holy Spirit and, say, and said it versus he or him? It's not an it. It's not a power source. He's a person. So Peter said to this guy, Simon, uh, he says in Acts chapter 8, verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, uh, pray the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Seems to be. Peter thought it was a pretty big issue to get the person of the Holy Spirit wrong. You better repent of this wickedness. Now you see, the uh, opposed to that error, uh, you can see uh, in the text of Scripture also how the Holy Spirit actually gets a hold of us. Listen to this, the opposite end of that spectrum. A at the beginning of the ministry uh, of uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas, the beginning of the missions movement, Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them to. Right? So you have an improper understanding 
and then you have a proper declaration that it's the person of the Holy Spirit who gets a hold of us and actually uses us, right? So in one case, the individual wants to get a hold of God. He imagines, again, God to be something more than just some kind of power source for his own uh, benefit. And then a second, God, uh, second case of the truth is that God gets a hold of us and uses us for God's glory because God happens to be uh, the issue in the room. I think I read that someplace. Right? And not only is the person of the Holy Spirit an actual person, not a power source, but a person, he's God of very God. Again, God of very God, distinct from the Father and the Son, absolutely divine. You see that in the distinct, uh, that distinct personage, personages represented, uh, again, by the Holy Spirit in the ordinance of baptism. Think about baptism, right? Jesus said, Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see the divine attributes uh, ascribed to the Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit, because the word holy in its most exalted sense, is a divine attribute. The Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity associated with God the Father, God the Son, called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. You see different places that he's actually attributed to the Holy Spirit, the names of God, Jehovah, the Most High, the Lord God of Israel, Adonai, the Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit called the Lord of the Spirit, and 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18, also that same Phraseology, 2 Thessalonians 3.5. The Holy Spirit, when you look at the text of Scripture, possesses divine attributes, including eternality, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, as demonstrated in his power to create. Right? Genesis 1. It's the Spirit who hovered over the, over, over the waters and created. His veracity or his truthfulness. His power to give life. He's called the Spirit of life. In Romans 8 and 2. The fact that he gives not only physical life, but he gives regenerating life to lost sinners. He's the one who sanctifies believers. And most plainly, and I'm going to have you turn there. I was wondering, debating with myself this morning as if I should or not, but I'm going to have you look at it. Look at Acts chapter 2, you know, just to get this completely nailed down. Or Acts chapter 5. I referenced it earlier, but I want you to see it. Very simply, very plainly, the Holy Spirit is called in Scripture God. Again, here's the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Peter said, Acts 5, 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Here it is. You have not lied to men, but to God. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why have you lied to God? When he heard these words, verse 5, and I fell down, breathed his last. And fear came upon all who heard it, and rightly so. Not only that, the people of God are called to what? Temple. Right? Our bodies are called the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, right? So, so we're to go glorify God with our bodies. Now, make, go back to John, because I want you to see this. This is uh, John uh, chapter 14. 
the deity of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus is going to teach on here. And, and this is just really, really tremendous. John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you, here it is, another helper, that he may be with you forever. Now, the word there is alos, A-L-L-O-S, transliterated, alos, another. Another helper, uh, paraclete, or paracletos. Uh, it just means, I think some of the translations say comforter, advocate, counselor. It means someone summoned alongside to help. Someone who comes and literally pleads the cause of somebody else before a judge or a magistrate. Comforter, counselor, exhorter, intercessor, encourager, advocate. I think you defense attorney. You probably use all those kind of terms. Now, in the Greek language, there are two words for another. We only have one in the English. If you say, I want another, it really doesn't tell you much about what you're asking for, except you want another one. right? I don't want this one, I want another. Whatever that thing is. But in the Greek, you have two words. In the Greek word, you have another word, heteros. Heteros, which also means another. But it means another of the same kind. Or another, I'm sorry, another of a different kind. Heteros, another of a different kind. We, we get our uh, English words heterodox or heterodoxy, uh, heterogeneous. Different of a different kind. Something completely different uh, in nature. Uh, for example, Acts chapter 7, verse 17 uh, at the time of the promise was approaching, which God assured Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose, verse 18, Acts 17, verse 18, until there arose another king uh, over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. That's, that's heteros, another king, a, a different kind of king, uh, a different kind of king who knew nothing about Joseph. Now, not only, again, a pharaoh from a different dynasty, but one who had a radically different attitude towards the nation of Israel. I think you read through this this morning in Sunday school, Galatians 1 and 6. I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different heteros gospel, which is really not a loss, right? It's not really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul's rebuking the Galatians for following a different gospel, another gospel, a heteros gospel, than the one that he received, that he's, he's a rebuking them for receiving a false gospel, not another of the same kind, not the true gospel. So you have a loss, which is uh, numerically distinct, again, different of the same kind, and then you have heteros, uh, which is qualitatively different. So when Jesus says here in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, it's a loss, another of the same kind. I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give you another just like me, another helper, Another helper who's going to come along just like I have and, and be with you, just like who I am, divine. I'm going to ask the Father who's going to give you another helper, deity, just like Jesus. Again, the divine person of the Holy Spirit who's been called to come alongside, who can come and take the place in the absence of Christ and do his work in us and through us after his departure. And look at the last part, that he may be with you forever. So again, to the disciples who are anxious, the disciples who he loves, the ones who are troubled in spirit because he's about to depart from them. To these he just told in the context, verse 12, they're going to do greater works than he did. They're going to pray efficacious prayers, uh, verses 13 and 14. The Lord promises that after his departure, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, 
another helper just like him, another helper of the same kind. And the Lord promises that he's going to send the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of empowering his disciples in the context, his followers of Christ now to be gospel witnessers, right? To to, to pray effectual prayers, to, to perform good works. So in the internal counsel of God, God the Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Holy Spirit, the Helper, who takes Jesus' place after his departure, who is going to do everything he has done, everything that Christ has done in Christ's absence, and he, the Holy Spirit, through his disciples, is going to advance the work and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. So I say this very carefully. Don't confuse, uh, be confused. So in essence, the Holy Spirit becomes another Jesus, not, not salvific and, and not in his person, but in his work. He comes in, in the stead of the absence of the Holy Spirit, of the, of the person of Jesus Christ, and he stands in Christ's place. He ministers to Christ's people on Christ's behalf. Therefore, the people of Christ are not impoverished at Jesus' departure. In fact, they're actually what? Greatly helped. Greatly helped. That's why Jesus is going to say in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things to bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. So again, to these people that the Lord loves, who are discouraged, he's about to depart from them. He's really trying to help them understand it's to their advantage that he leaves. Because he's going to send one exactly like himself. One like himself is coming. One who's going to come and do everything for them that he has done for them. One who'll be their teacher. One who'll be their illuminator. One who'll be their guide. One who will warn them about temptation. One who will help them fight temptation. One who will actually teach them how to worship. And again, the, the end of the text, the end of the verse is just phenomenal. One who will be there with them when? How long? Forever. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Don't overlook that. When Jesus was incarnate, he could only be at one place at one time. He's in this town, you're in that town. He's not here. He's over there, you're over here, whatever, right? Because he's, as a man, he, he's limited to, to space. But he says, it's your advantage I go away because I'm going to send somebody who will be with you always. I will be with you always. I think I read that someplace, right? I'll be with you forever. So in essence, Jesus is saying, look, it's to your advantage that I go because something or someone uh, better is coming. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 16, Jesus says, Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go away, I'll send him to you. Now, I had to do all of that just to get us to begin to understand verse 15. And I did. We've got to understand the truth. We've got to understand who the person of the Holy Spirit is, what he does. Verse 15, chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, 
that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he what? Abides in you. That's pretty good. He dwells within you, right? He abides with you and will be in you. Now again, remember, we're the night before uh, the crucifixion of Christ, the uh, upper room. Uh, he's trying to encourage the heart of his 11 disciples, these, true, true, these 11 true disciples followers that are sitting in front of him. Back up at chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe. Believe God, believe also in me. Right? Believe in God, believe in me. Because the answer to a troubled heart is what? God. Believing in God. Trusting God. Trusting Christ. He says, look, they're in my father's house. There are many mansions. So he says, look, there's going to be a reunion. I know there's going to be a uh, separation, but there's going to be a reunion, a future reunion in the father's house. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you. If I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. And men need to trust what I say to be true always. And men need to understand, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The only way to have access to God, the only way for men to have their sin forgiven is through Jesus Christ and him alone. The only way to be reconciled is through Jesus Christ. That's the message. That's the truth that men need to hear. They need to have that truth, to have their (coughs) ignorance corrected about themselves and about God. They need to understand that he alone is life, that he is the only source for regenerated life. So that men would be set free from the power of death and given new life. And then as we saw last week, Jesus reaffirms his deity. Remember that? Verses uh, <coughs> 7 through 11. In order to comfort the troubled heart, what we need is to have a proper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that he's God incarnate, God in the flesh. And if you want to know what the Father's like, you look at the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has proved his deity over and over and over again. So again, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of anxious hearts, in the midst of fear, the command by Christ is to believe, trust him, believe upon him. Verse 11, believe me. And remember I told you it's really, it's a present active, so it's really keep on believing. Keep on believing that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Men who are followers, listen, men who are followers of Christ, women who are followers of Christ don't have to worry. Give me a text that says we ought to worry about everything. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says exactly the opposite. It says be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. Why? Because we haven't got to it in our text this morning, but I just told you the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Don't worry. Believe. Keep on believing and trust yourself to God and trust yourself to Christ, the one who can and does care for you. Verse 12, he encourages his followers to trust his power and be encouraged by the fact that you're going to do greater works. Again, referring to the extent, not to... Uh, um, uh, to the extent of the works, not uh, level, but extent as in the fact that when he departs, the the gospel is going to be spread. He's not really talking about miraculous, physical miraculous. He's talking about the greater work of proclamation. Truly, truly, I say to you, he believes in me and the works that I do shall also do greater works than these uh, he shall do because I go to the Father. It's going to be the proclamation of the gospel to go to all of the nations because of the finished work of Christ. So he says, look, if you're a follower of Christ, a follower of me, you're going to proclaim the truth. There's reconciliation through me and through me alone. And that is going to go, that message of truth is going to go through in you, through the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And that message is going to go to the entire nation, to the entire world, right? And that's exactly what happened. That's what happened then. It's what continues to happen. We're talking about it in one of the groups yesterday, or one of the guys I was talking with anyway. Uh, You know, they, they turned the world upside down. 
They turned the world upside down. Now, I don't know, uh, uh, Roman, first century Rome, probably not too far off of where we're living. Probably not too far off. All the debauchery, the evil, perversion, wickedness, anti-God, not understanding truth whatsoever. These men turned the world upside down. You, men and women, sitting in this room on the live stream in the room behind me, we have been called for this time. We don't live in the good old days. We don't live in the future. We don't live in the past. We need to live in the present. Take hold of the ministry that God has given to us. Proclaim the truth and and see how God overturns the world or disrupts the world uh, and calls to himself those whom he has called from eternity and calls them in time. That's the mission. And this all happens because we trust. We trust that God is going to answer our prayer. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Uh, again, that's probably the heart of the message of the comfort that he's providing for them. I- I'm going, but don't worry. Just ask, and I'll provide it for you. That's got to be encouraging. We don't have, the book of James says, we ask not. We don't have because we don't ask. Oh, I'm most anxious. Well, maybe we should pray, Lord, help me not to be anxious. Lord, help me to believe more. Lord, help me to trust more. It's tremendously encouraging to him. I mean, look, in the midst of this, they don't quite get it. We're going to give them a break because they're on the other side of the cross. We have no excuse. We're on this side of the cross. We know how the story works out. They don't quite get it. Their whole world is collapsing. Their hopes, their dreams. He's throwing them, giving them a solid rock to which they can cling to. They're They're giving them shelter. He's giving them shelter in which they can hide behind. That in my name, according to my purposes and my will, you can freely approach the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. And when you come to the throne of grace in full identification with the Son, uh, seeking what only he would see, God is going to answer your prayer. And we can't even get people sometimes to answer the stinking telephone. Call them and call them. It's a busy signal or they don't pick up or they don't pick up. I won't say anything about my kids when I try to text them. If the shoe fits. We can call God anytime we want. The gap between heaven and earth is closed instantaneously by prayer. You know, I'm kind of a simple guy. Either this whole thing is true or it's not. This. It's either the whole thing is true or it's not. It's that simple. We either say we believe it and then we start practically living it out on a practical theological level, practical level in our life, believing the theology we profess, or the whole thing's a sham. The distance, the gap between heaven and earth is closed. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name that I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. All right, Lord, we're going to stop right in the middle and we're going to pray, help us solve the space issue. Your people, you continue to send them. We're glad that they're here. We want to minister to them. We're really encouraged by everybody in the room, front room, back room, on the line. Help us. We talked about that yesterday, right? Prayers. Prayers don't have to be long. Help me. I mean, I pray that one a lot. I don't know what to do. Help me. In the moment. So the Lord's encouraging his disciples, encouraging us. In his departure, he's not going to leave them alone. He's not going to leave them without resources. They're not alone in a hostile world. We're not alone in a hostile world. We don't need to worry about anything. We have all the help we need. Full access to the heavenly resources that God possesses. 
and the promise that God cares. No less true for these guys that are sitting in front of Jesus and the ones who are again in this room or the room behind me or on the live stream. He wants them to be encouraged that in his physical presence, comfort is coming. Help is coming. He's going to send the person of the Holy Spirit. So although they may not see Christ any longer, they'll still again know his love for them. And again, in many ways, his departure is going to be better for them. Now, who is Christ making these promises to? I've alluded to it a couple times. But the Lord wants to get a little bit more defining here. And God, he's speaking to the 11 in front of him. In the scope, I think he's speaking much broader to all those who are described in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the principle that Christ lays down of all true believers. Those who truly love Christ demonstrate their love to him by obedience to him. And the New Testament repeatedly teaches that, that love for Christ and submission to him are necessary expressions to authentic belief, authentic faith. Faith apart from works is useless, James 2 and 20. Titus 1, 16. There are many unbelievers who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Jesus repeatedly stressed the necessity of obedience. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Luke 11, verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it or keep it. So if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now that truth is so important that Jesus repeats it in verse 21 and verse 23. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. He states it negatively in verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. He did the same thing in Luke 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He did it in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says, who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The writer of the book of Hebrews says concerning Christ, Hebrews 5, 9, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. On the contrary, in his second coming, Jesus will, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, Jesus will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So obedience to Christ is vital. As, has, as it's been said, obedience is the hallmark of genuine saving faith and the love for Christ. Those who are truly saved by grace alone through faith alone inevitably will respond with a life of submission and service to Christ. Because with regenerated hearts and renewed minds as new creatures in Christ, genuine Christians can't help but outwardly reflect who they are as new creations on the inside. One writer puts it like this. He says, love for Christ is not some sentimentalism or sickly pseudo-spiritual feeling. It does not result in mere lip service. Either real love for him is demonstrated by an active, uh, uh, eager, joyful, responsive obedience to his commands. He says, what you say about your love for him is relatively unimportant. What counts is what you show, is that you show your love for him by how you live your life. He says, discipleship is not singing songs and saying nice things, but true discipleship is obedience motivated by love. So if you love me, you'll keep my commands. 
So what are they? Well, what are the commands? Well, in short, everything. <laughs> right? Everything. Probably don't have time to go into everything today, so there you go. And everything. Everything that God's Word says. Uh, the entire revelation of the will of God. But here in the near context, remember what Jesus said back in chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you that if that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Over in John chapter 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I also love you and abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater no, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Kind of a repeated theme there. And let me tell you what, John never quit beating that drum. Towards the end of his life, the Apostle John emphasizes again the inseparable link between love and obedience. Uh, in his first epistle, 1 John, 1 John 2 and 3, by this we know we've come to, we have, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. 1 John 3, verse 20, or chapter 3, verse 23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he commanded us. He who keeps his commands abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us in the spirit whom he has given. 1 John 4.21, this is the commandment that we have from him, (coughs) that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 5 and 2, by this we know that we love Christ, or by this we know the love of uh, by this, First John five two. By this we know that we love the children of God when uh, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments aren't burdensome. So He says, "Love one another." You know, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. When you intentionally love each other, you're obeying my commandments. And again, something the world doesn't do—they don't love anybody. Something the world can't do because the world's in love with themselves. And we here, indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, are not in the world. We're not of the world. We're we're in the world. We're not of the world. We've been transformed, changed from the inside out. So we are called as Christians to follow Christ, who did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but actually humbled himself to the point where he was obedient to the point of death, not only incarnating himself, but death on the cross. So we are called to put others above ourselves, our personal interests, to love each other with Christ-like sacrificial love that God has loved us through, or loved us with through Christ. Then when we're obedient to the word... Under the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll have the opportunity to do the greater works that Christ has promised us to be part of. Again, the greater work of spreading the gospel. So again, our relationship with each other in the body of Christ is crucial. Our obedience to the word of God vital. And our love for each other attractive to the unbelieving world around us. And attractive to those whom the Lord continues to send to this fellowship. I know some of you in the room front room, back room, online, have been with us for a long time. A lot of you have only been with us for a short time. But I know this, many of you have told me repeatedly how you feel loved by people in this fellowship. Perhaps never loved like any other church you've ever been a part of. 
But we want to make sure we protect that. It's a gift. Protect the unity, the bond of peace that God has given to us, and it all comes from sitting under the teaching of the word and continue to love each other and love Christ and love people in this fellowship. Be willing, perhaps, to give up some of the preferences we might have for the sake of others. Others who are in the building now, others who might be coming, the Lord might continue to send. As again, we attempt to deal with the space issue in a building that really no longer fits our current ministry needs. So Jesus says, look, I'm going to depart, but I want to be an encouragement to you. I'm not going to be any longer visibly present with you, but I'm not going to leave you alone. So again, to these 11, and by extension to all who are obedient to the commands of Christ, to all followers of Christ, you're not going to be left alone. I'm going to send you one like me, and I'm going to give you permanent hope. And the promise of God's hope is we're going to have the entirety of the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead, working on our behalf. And most specifically, the presence of the Holy Spirit, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another one like me, another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. Tremendous words of hope and encouragement that, Lord willing, we'll have to get to next time.